Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this first of two podcasts is Dr. Robert Lustig, professor of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Lustig is a neuroendocrinologist and highly esteemed for his scientific work and clinical work in dealing with the issue of childhood obesity. Um, Rob, delighted to have you here. My pleasure, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Well, let's take the issue of childhood obesity and put it in context. Uh, first, most people know that it's a pretty serious problem, but just how serious is it? Well, from a uh, medical standpoint, you could say, well, obese kids aren't showing any of the wear and tear, the aging issues that we see in the adults. But indeed, all of those phenomena are going on, and we can measure them, and we see them happening. We know what this means in terms of the future. We see the tsunami, you know, uh, off the shore on its way here. And 20 years from now, this is going to completely overtake medicine. So the concept that childhood obesity isn't causing all of the health care disasters right now is just missing the point. This will be all there is in terms of health care. Plus, Medicare will be broke by 2024. There will be no money to pay for any of this for all of us. So expensive diseases like diabetes could be a really uh, special problem in this context. Exactly. So let's talk, well, I'll come back in a minute and talk about the specific medical consequences. But before we do that, how large is the scale of the problem? What is the prevalence? Are the trends going up, down, or staying the same, or what? So approximately 30% of kids are obese now. Now, that's a little different based on race. So Caucasians, a little less so. And some of the data that came out of the CDC not too long ago suggests that the Caucasians have stabilized, maybe even a 2.2% downturn, but the African-American, Latino, and most worrisome, the Asian populations continue to rise, uh, and there's no stopping that. Are there any differences across populations in susceptibility to medical problems at a given weight? Absolutely. Uh, different races can tolerate different amounts of body fat. African-Americans can basically tolerate five points of BMI higher than Caucasians. So how much, for people who don't know about BMI, what five points would mean in terms of excess weight? About 20 pounds. Okay. And uh, Asians can tolerate five points of BMI less than Caucasians. We all get a certain number of subcutaneous fat cells, the fat on our butts, the fat, you know, on our legs, and any other fat that comes in, it comes to your belly, and that causes the problem. Asians, for reasons that are completely unclear, have lower amounts of subcutaneous fat. That means when they start building fat, they're putting it in the wrong place. They're putting it in their belly. And so they actually get sicker at a lower weight, a lower BMI. And so that fat stored in the abdominal region is especially dangerous. Absolutely. In particular, the fat stored in the liver. Let's go back then to the medical consequences of obesity in children. What are some of the major problems that are occurring because of the high obesity rates? Well, the big one, the one that's captured the world's attention, is type 2 diabetes. When I was uh, a fellow, when I was an early attending, you know, 20 years ago, if you saw a kid with type 2 diabetes, I mean, the first thing you say is, well, you got the diagnosis wrong. 
Now that is one third of our diagnoses and it's going up and it's happening in kids as soon as they hit puberty. Uh, and pretty much, I would say 98% of those kids are massively obese. Now, if you fast forward into their, when kids are diabetic that young, into their 20s or 30s, what would you expect to see? Well, we're already starting to see it. We're starting to see all the ravages of uh, type 2 diabetes uh, played out in children. We're starting to see the changes in the eyes. We're starting to see the neuropathy. We're starting to see the kidney disease. Um, most concerning is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So this is a disease that is just like alcohol in terms of what it can do, in terms of the inflammation, the uh, scarring, and the cirrhosis. We've already done two liver transplants on 15-year-old 400-pound soda drinkers. That's amazing, that young. There we are. Um, I've heard people project that children who are diabetic before 10 or around that age couldn't need coronary bypass in their 20s or 30s or start losing limbs to amputation. Is that correct? We're waiting. It it hasn't happened yet, but all of the processes that will get us there are in full force. And aside from diabetes, what medical issues are you concerned about? So, of course, heart disease. Uh, Again, we haven't seen... Through diabetes as a path or independent of diabetes? Independent and through diabetes, both. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, All the lipid problems, which of course contribute to heart disease. Uh, High blood pressure, uh, very specifically uh, because of the nature of the food we eat, and we'll talk about that later. And uh, 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 aside from hypertension, uh, the uh, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and very recent and early and preliminary data, and it's only correlative data right now, not causative data, so I'm a little loath to mention it, but there is correlative data on both cancer and dementia as well. Do children have to be quite overweight for these medical problems to kick in? No, and actually neither do adults. And that's one of the uh, true uh, uh, major issues that people need to understand about obesity. If you look at obese people, 80% of them are sick, but 20% of them are not. 20% of them are completely healthy. They have completely normal metabolic profiles, and they will live to a ripe old age, and they're just obese. 40% of the thin people have the same exact problems as the obese. They have the same thing called metabolic syndrome. They have the same heart disease. They have the same high blood pressure. They have the same lipid problems. We just don't routinely associate it with obesity. And that's a very important notion because almost everyone believes that obesity is the cause of these other problems. I don't think that's true. I think obesity is a marker for the same metabolic dysfunction that causes these other problems as well. And would it be the diet and the activity that are the causative factors, would you think? Well, those are the um, early precipitating factors, but then the biochemical process that goes on inside your body is very specific, and it's called metabolic syndrome. Okay. If children lose weight, overweight children lose weight, or their weight stays stable and you wait for their height to catch up, do these problems reverse? Yeah, they do. Completely? Um, Well, I don't know about completely. Uh, Ultimately, uh, our goal is to try to get them to stabilize. And if they stabilize, that's good enough. Uh, We do know that there are some things that have been shown in the literature to actually reverse some of these uh, cardiac issues, some of these um, atherosclerosis issues. Um, Certain uh, very extreme diets, 
certainly very low-calorie diets. But, you know, these are things that most people can't do and stay on. You've mentioned how evolution is a player in the development of childhood obesity and how the environment and biology are interacting in an interesting way. Would you explain your thoughts on that? Okay. Well, this is a little complicated, but let's try to you know, go through it real quick. We have a hormone in our fat cells called leptin. And leptin is really, really interesting. Leptin's supposed to tell your brain that you've had enough, that you've eaten enough, and you can burn energy at a normal rate so that you can stay in normal negative energy balance. And leptin worked perfectly fine for 5 million years. And in the last 30 years, all of a sudden, out of the blue, leptin doesn't work anymore. Because if leptin did work, we wouldn't all be obese. Something has happened to leptin signaling in the brain that has driven this obesity epidemic, which has driven the reduction in activity, because that's trying to conserve energy, and the increase in caloric consumption in an attempt to try to raise leptin levels in order to try to get the brain the signal. So the question is, what has blocked leptin signaling? Our research sums it up in one word, insulin. Insulin blocks leptin signaling at the brain. And so from an evolutionary standpoint, why would that happen? Why would insulin block leptin? Why, what, what the, how come that makes sense? And the answer is, there are two times in your life you actually have to gain weight. One is puberty, and the other one's pregnancy. If your leptin worked right all the time, you couldn't gain the weight during puberty to become reproductively competent, and you couldn't gain the weight during pregnancy to carry the baby to term. So doesn't it make sense that the same hormone that causes the weight gain in your fat cells should also be the same hormone that blocks the leptin signaling in the brain to get you to eat more in order to drive that weight gain? problem is we're only supposed to do it twice in our lifetimes, and we're doing it 24-7, 365. So that's the first evolutionary issue. So then you say to me, okay, where did the insulin come from? How come insulin's now so high? And it is. <clears throat> Everybody's insulins are about three times higher than they were just 30 years ago. And the question is, where, where'd that come from? And I can sum that up in one word also, uh, and that's going to be the subject of our next podcast, sugar. Sugar did this. Sugar, because of its unique metabolism and how it works in the liver, has driven a phenomenon called liver insulin resistance, driving our insulin levels up, and in the process, basically starving our brains and telling our brains, we need more. Now, the question is, evolutionary, why should that be? And again, we're not sure of this, but we think we do know. Sugar used to only be available one month a year. It was called harvest time. Okay? And the, you know, our ancestors would gather the, the, the fruit that hit the ground. And you know, bottom line was when harvest time occurred, the only thing they ate was fruit. And they gained weight because of it. And then what came? Four months of winter, famine, no food. So didn't it make sense from a nature standpoint that we would increase our adiposity just before we would need it in response to clim you know, our climate change. And we call that seasonal insulin resistance. And so the fact that the sugar was available just before we needed it in order for our energy stores to go up is also evolutionary. Problem is now, sugar is 
24-7-365, which is, again, maladaptive. And then finally, the last evolutionary uh, construct. There is no food on the face of the earth that is both sweet and acutely poisonous. Even Jamaican ackee fruit, which causes Jamaican vomiting sickness, has a, a substance in it called hypoglycin, which makes your blood sugar go right down to zero, kills you. Even that is only an immature fruit. If the fruit ripens and falls to the ground, that means that the hypoglycin has gone and it's safe to eat. And of course, the Jamaicans know that. So every foodstuff on the planet that's sweet is safe. It's ingrained in our DNA to be seeking and looking for that. So all these speak to a, a, a smart body that behaves well and is in a, a sort of sync with the environment as long as you don't get the modern food with lots of sugar processed foods and things like that. Exactly. This is a mismatch between our evolutionary biochemistry and our environment, our current environment. So it obviously speaks about changing some of these toxic factors in the environment, which we'll talk about more in the, the next podcast. Well, we can't change our biochemistry. We only really only have one choice. Right. Um, what do you think about the issue of treating obesity versus preventing it? Treating obesity is really hard. It's virtually downright impossible. I mean, I do it. Uh, the other thing to realize is that obesity is not one problem, it's many. There are about 60 different causes of obesity. Uh, everyone will say, well, you eat too much, you exercise too little. And those things are true, but those are markers for the biochemical process, not the causes. And I can prove that to you sitting here as we speak right now. You eat 2,000 calories a day. You burn 2,000 calories a day. You feel good. Normal day. Are you going to gain weight, lose weight, or stay the same? You're going to stay the same because you burn what you eat, nothing to store. Okay, fine. Now let's do a little experiment. I'm going to put an intravenous in your arm, tape it down, and I'm going to follow behind you. And every time you reach for food during the course of the day, I'm going to pump you full of extra insulin that you didn't want or need. Same thing we do to all our diabetics. We over-insulinize them. So you start out the day eating 2,000 calories just like before, but now because of the extra insulin I'm pumping you full of, 500 of those 2,000 calories whoosh, straight to fat, like what the IRS does to your paycheck, right off the top, gone before you had a chance to spend it. In this case, gone before you had a chance to burn it. You are now 500 calories heavier, whether you like it or not. Now, you ate 2,000, but you lost 500 to your fat. How many are left to burn? 1,500. But your body wants to burn 2,000 because that's where it feels good. And this is one of the mantras that are, is absolutely true, and I can't prove it. But nonetheless, <laughs> it's true. And that is that energy expenditure and quality of life are synonymous. Things that make your energy expenditure go up make you feel good, like caffeine exercise, ephedrine, it's off the market. Things that make your energy expenditure go down make you feel lousy, like hypothyroidism, starvation. So how many calories you burn and how good you feel are the same. You now only have 1,500 to burn, but your body wants to burn 2,000. How are you going to feel? Crappy, tired, slothy, sit on the couch, don't want to do anything, don't want to exercise, maybe play video games, sound familiar, and of course hungry. And so in a world of free access to food, which we all live in, what are you going to do? Eat back the 500. So I know another reason that people cite as a barrier to losing weight is how the body adjusts metabolically as you're losing weight. That's right. Would you mind explaining what, what happens there? That's leptin. 
That's basically not just leptin resistance, not just deficiency in leptin signaling, but now you've got a declining leptin on top of it. So your brain now really thinks you're starving. And so what it's doing is it's conserving energy because its goal is survival. And if it uh, expends energy, that potentially could put you over the edge. So this is all adaptive. And so that's why endocrinologists sort of get this and why, you know, I feel like I have a special, you know, role to play in this obesity epidemic, explaining how hormones change behavior. So this speaks to the um, importance of prevention, and that gets to changing the nature of the food supply and, of course, opportunities to be physically active. So we'll talk more about that in the second podcast. So thank you very much. I'm grateful for your contribution. Oh, it's my pleasure, Kelly. Our guest is Dr. Robert Lustig, professor of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, Visit our webcast, if you would, at www.yalerudcenter.org. And there you'll find a number of resources on food policy issues, access to a free email newsletter on on, uh, food policy that we send out, and, of course, links to the other podcasts that we've recorded with outstanding guests who visited the Rudd Center. Thank you. Really what I see myself doing. Uh, And having worked in basic science, having worked in clinical research, having worked in clinical medicine, and now extending into policy, you know, I feel like I at least can connect the dots in, you know, maybe a way that hadn't been thought of before. So the question is, what do you do? How do you fix this? For substances that are abused but not toxic, who cares? Caffeine. And whatever you do, don't take my coffee away from me. (laughs) For substances that are toxic but not abused, like vitamin A, vitamin D, iron, they'll kill you too, but there's no abuse potential. You don't have to do anything either. For substances that are both toxic and abused at the same time, like cocaine, amphetamine, nicotine, cannabis, ethanol, morphine, heroin, we end up needing personal intervention, for instance, rehab, and we need societal intervention, which for lack of a better word, we'll call laws. And so the question is, does sugar fit this same uh, criteria? And the answer is, yes, it does. So how do you construct a personal intervention and a societal intervention that would go hand in hand together? Personal intervention, well, starts with education. And that's why we're doing this podcast, is for education. The problem is that the data on education around calories, sugar, menu labeling, thus far, have not shown any change in behavior. And that's very, very worrisome and disturbing. However, maybe not too surprising because it was also true for every other drug of abuse. Did Nancy Reagan's Just Say No work? Not really. An example. So I don't think education is a 